Okay. So we are very, very close uh, to the end of our How to Change series. We are now um, actually just two sermons away. uh, Today's conversation and then next week. And then after that, we'll actually have a Christmas party together. And then we'll have basically two weeks off for Christmas before we come back uh, in January. And uh, as we just get back into it and as we're closing our series, um, we're just trying to remember uh, what we're doing and why we're doing it. What we're doing is learning about um, God's call for us to change. Even though every single one of us um, is accepted to God when we come to him with our sin, with our uh, weaknesses, with our burdens. Um, Though God accepts us, he doesn't leave us as we are. Um, As a result of coming to God, he both supernaturally changes us, and then he also gives us a pathway that we might be disciplined in growing to be more like him. Um, That pathway, in a general sense, if you could kind of bring it down to its bare bones, um, is that we know God, and then we become like God as a result of living with God. Um, That's really kind of change in a nutshell. It's knowing God and becoming like God as we live and walk with God. But the Bible is also very particular in how that works out. Uh, One way that we looked at that is... Um, how we understood repentance. Repentance is the practical pathway that God gave us. And we did uh, four weeks on that idea of repentance as well. Um, But what we've been doing in the last three sermons is dealing with change in real life. Because the Bible is incredibly realistic uh, about change. Um, The Bible explains that change is hard, something that we know. And the Bible isn't shy about admitting because Um, God has helped us learn to change in a very uncomfortable and difficult place, which is the world that we live in, the culture uh, that we live in. This is a very difficult and uncomfortable place to try and live holy and godly lives. And the reason is because there's all sorts of different struggles that we deal with as we're trying to change. Um, We've dealt with three of them already. We've dealt with temptation. We've dealt with struggles against Satan and his schemes against us. And we've also dealt with the issue of suffering. And yet, as we deal with all of those things, the Bible isn't shy about bringing those things up. And there's a very important reason why that is. And that is because all of those struggles are actually a fundamental part of how God is changing us. If those struggles didn't come in our lives... Um, we would not be able to change in the dramatic ways that we could before the struggles. And what those struggles actually end up being are divine opportunities to grow in ways that weren't possible before. And that means as we hold on to Christ and we deal with temptation or we deal with Satan's devices against us or we deal with different circumstances of suffering, all of those things are actually things that don't just make us Better don't just make us um, get past the struggles, but they're actually essential in making us more Christ-like. The goal of change is to be more Christ-like, and those struggles are important for that. Um, And today we're going to deal with the fourth and final struggle um, that's part of real life. One other essential struggle that I honestly think is probably the one people would bring up the most, or at least the one that I seem to hear Um, from you guys most often. And the last struggle in our Learning How to Change series is this, uh, the struggle with people. People themselves are maybe one of the greatest struggles that we have. 
people are difficult. Uh, people are a struggle, and the struggle is very real. Um, we use other words to describe people uh, that are hindrance in our lives, like annoying, or weird, or distracting. Other people's weaknesses slow us down, and other people's struggles um, become struggles for us. And other people sin. And when other people sin, that has consequences on us if we're around them. And people inevitably sin, and that inevitably causes consequences for us. Other people are often the biggest uh, obstacle in us getting the things that we want. And people also come into our lives and test us in the ways we don't want them to test us. They test our patience, our forbearance, our forgiveness, our kindness, and most importantly, our selflessness. And for those reasons, one of the big strategies that we can often use when people become difficult is to remove ourselves from people. Inevitably, at the same time, we don't remove ourselves from all people, just most people. And in the meantime, the people that we keep close are the people that are the most like us, that agree with us the most, that are most similar to us, and most encouraging of us. And once we have those people, we tend to isolate ourselves from basically everybody else around. Or at least that often becomes the strategy. And if that is a struggle, if any of those things are true in your life, then the question we need to ask is how are we going to deal with that issue? People are inevitable. You can't remove yourself from all people. And the Bible has things for that. But the question is, um, can I remove myself from as many people as possible? Now, a very simple way that we could kind of have a one-sentence response to all of that and just move on is for me to simply look at all of you and say, hey, you're selfish. Stop being selfish. Start loving other people. Um, start getting out of your own head and just deal with it. And there's a sense in which that actually is true. We need to be really honest about how selfish we are and the ways that we prioritize ourselves uh, so seriously. But the problem with that, I think, even though it is true, is that that's not enough. Or at least it's not enough to give us an actual pathway forward, an actual way forward to change and be better at this. We don't just need a command or demand to love. We also need to see how God cares so much for us that he would train us to love. Even though love is a command, God has actually created an environment in which God's people could come and be in that environment and it would have the perfect conditions to maximize their ability to grow in love. God has created a way to teach us and to train us to love so we can fulfill his commandments and as we're dealing with the series, how to grow so that we can fulfill God's goals for our lives. And the easiest way to describe that is saying the solution to the problem of people is people. And what I mean specifically is the problem with people is overcome when you understand the church. Ultimately, the church is an environment God has created to teach you and to train you how to love. It's the ultimate pathway to maximize growth in your life. And the question is how? Well, ultimately, the church exists to glorify God. That is the most important reason the church exists. But consequently to that... The church is a group that God has brought together, completely different people, to create a different kind of community, and whose purpose would be different from any other community in the world. And that different community has the perfect conditions to grow together. 
And so, therefore, we need to understand how the church created, uh, was created to be this way, and therefore why the church is essential for change. Now, in one sense, we have to be doing a really focused study because we can't explain everything about the church in one sermon. And so what we're going to really hone in on is how the church helps us change. That's really what we're doing. Not every reason the church exists, but specifically why the church is essential uh, for change. And probably the greatest passage in the whole Bible that talks about that is Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 to 16. So if you have your Bibles, pull them out and go to Ephesians chapter 4, and we're going to be reading from verses 11 to 16. And if you don't have your Bible, it's going to be on the screen for you as well. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11 to 16. This is the Apostle Paul, and this is what he says to the Ephesian church after he's explained why Christ came, what he did, and what he's still doing, even though he's died, rose again, and is in heaven now. Christ is still doing something, and he's doing it in the church through the people that he's called to be the church. And in Ephesians 4, he begins this conversation, and he starts talking about how the church helps us change in verse 11. And this is what he says. And he, which is Christ, and Christ gave to the gave us the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, and to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children, tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Now, if you look at the screen there, you can see on the PowerPoint that there's some certain words uh, that are highlighted in green there. If you look at those words, you can see how clearly Paul's main point is in view. The main thing that Paul is talking about is maturity. Every single one of those words is talking about maturity. And maturity is something we all know about. Maturity, in the simplest sense, means to grow up. And actually, one of the words that he uses in verse 15 is, we are to grow up. But what Paul is specifically talking about when he talks about maturity is the idea of becoming complete. Christians are people who have been completed with everything they need in Christ, but at the same time, they are becoming more and more complete. They are growing, they are changing, and that is something that the church is designed to help us do. What Paul explains first in verses 11 to 14 is he talks about maturity in the church and how it was perfectly designed to help us mature. And specifically in verses 11 to 14, he explains three different ways that God designed the church to help us change. And that's the first thing we're going to talk about. Three different ways that the church helps us change. And the first one of those things is seen in verses 11 to 12. And it's this, that the church helps us change by equipping us for service. The church tells us change by equipping us for service. 
Paul begins that conversation, verse 11, by saying that Christ gave. Now, the New Testament constantly talks about the things that God has given his people. He's given us salvation, adoption, grace, hope, and most importantly, he's given us his own son, Jesus Christ. But there's another thing that the church has given to us, that Christ has given to his church to help us change, and that's other people. God has gifted us with other people. And what Paul begins in verse 11, he actually names five people that were specifically gifted and given to us to help us change. He names them as apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers. Now, different people debate on exactly who is being talked about. Is he talking about people that the church was given to earlier, like apostles and prophets who are no longer with us? Or is he making general statements as to different kinds of gifts, like the ability to plan a church or the ability to teach people? But regardless if, God is ta- if Paul is talking about a specific job or a kind of gifting, the point is kind of the same, which is that God gifted the church with certain people that we need. There are certain people we need, and God gave us those people. Now, those people aren't better than anyone else. You can actually see that in verse 7 of Ephesians 4, where it says that Christ's grace was given according to the measure of his gift, which basically means everyone in the church is gifted, which we'll talk about in a bit, but certain people have gifts to help lead us to grow. And that leadership is important because it's easier for us to wander and do things that we think are good, but they're not necessarily godly. They're not necessarily about Christ. And certain people help us by pointing us to the word, not as dictators, but as disciplers. And what they do is they are called to teach us and to train us. And Paul explains what they're teaching us and training us to do, which is not only to know Christ and to love him, but to love and serve one another. And Paul makes that point in verse 12, and he says, Christ gave these people to equip the saints, to equip them. And that word equip literally means to be perfected. Now, he doesn't mean that we're going to be taught how to be perfect so that we never sin again or never make a mistake again. But perfected is the idea of becoming more complete. Christ gave these people to help us become more complete, to help us work together properly and to do it with joy rather than being demanded to do it and specifically that we would come together to do two things to minister and to build equipping the saints for the work of ministry and for the building up of the body of christ the idea of ministering is to serve one another and building means to help one another grow that's what these people help us do And even if you think that that's a given, that's something you already know, this is why this is so important to understand. You need to know that people were given to help you be completed. Because so many people, and maybe you too, think that church is a place that only completed people go to. So many people in our church and many other churches will come to church in the morning on Sundays. And they will think that they're only acceptable if they're 100% ready to worship. Or if they've had a perfect week. Or if they are super happy and they have nothing wrong with their lives. And so they hide frustrations and anxieties. Or maybe they think it's too hard to go to church because the church is only for people that love one another. And it's hard for me to love. People are difficult or they're stubborn. Or maybe I just don't know people. Maybe I'm just shy. And for any of those reasons, people will disqualify themselves from going to church. And the reality is that the exact 
opposite thing is true. Christ designed the church not so that we would already come and be complete, but that we would come and learn to be completed. God gifted the church with different people. People who would lead you and people who would support you and encourage you and even admonish you so that you would become complete. True Christians who come to church in the morning on Sundays understand that they are incomplete and they are coming to receive something from Christ and to receive something from his people. And even though people come with service on their hearts and love in their hearts, they also understand they need to be filled and redirected to Christ in order for any of that to happen. Real Christians come to Sunday week and needing assurance, needing to be built up. And that is exactly what the church was designed to do for you. That it would be an institution to direct you to your hope so that you could direct that hope to others. That's the first reason that the church exists, is to equip us for service. But here's the second thing that it does, which goes right from the first, which is in verse 13, which is that the church helps us to change by uniting us around Christ. It unites us around Christ. And verse 13 explains that by saying, we're growing until we all attain unity. The church is about unity. Now, if we are honest and we look at it, the world, basically everyone is looking for other people. Very few people want to live their lives in complete isolation. People are looking for friendships and support and teamwork because it makes the dream work. We understand the value of other people. But the problem is you can find as many friends as you want and you still need unity. You need to be able to agree and work together and love each other. And history has proven that this is something that is almost impossible. Whether it's small frictions or huge divides, unity is very, very difficult. Friendships end, teams lose, bands break up, political parties become fractured. And protesters and activists will fight with each other. And at the end of the day, they might change causes or leave the cause altogether. The question is, will the church succumb to the same issue? Because we are also broken and incomplete people. And Christ has said it won't. Christ has provided us a path to come together and to stay together. In John chapter 17... When Christ is going to die for us, he prays to the Father. And one of the most, the biggest things on Christ's mind in that moment, the biggest moment in the history of the universe, one of the biggest things on Christ's mind is unity. He actually prays to the Father in that moment in John 17. Father, I pray that they may be one even as we are one. Christ is one with the Father and the Spirit in Trinity, and he wants his people who worship the Trinity to be just as close together. And that must be on Paul's mind too in Ephesians 4, because he begins in chapter 4, verse 3, by saying, God's people should be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. And the reason they are is because they're one with Christ. Christ is both the source of our ability to be unified as well as the goal of our unity. The Trinity has given us the ability to be united as well as to continue to grow in unity. Now the question we have obviously is, how exactly does Christ help us do this? And Paul actually explains it very simply in three ways. Christ unites us by giving us a direction, a goal, 
and a measurement. A direction, a goal, and a measurement. So the direction of our unity is towards Christ. And he says that by saying, we are aiming for the knowledge of the Son of God. And that's Christ. The way the church comes together is by going down one path towards one direction, which is to know more about Christ. Christ united us, and therefore we want to know more about him and how to worship him more. That's our direction. But the second thing he gives us is a goal. Why are we going towards Christ? Well, we worship Christ because Christ has called us to a mature manhood. That's the next thing he says in verse 13. Now, that doesn't mean that the goal of the church is for all of us and to be individually maturing. Notice he doesn't say to a bunch of mature men. The way he phrases it is that we would be one mature man. Many of you know that the biggest metaphor for the church in the Bible is being a body. Not bodies, but one body to which we are all members of. That's 1 Corinthians 12. And therefore, the goal of us as a church is to be so united that we would collectively grow. One person doesn't say, I want this bicep big and I want this bicep small. The whole body contributes towards the same goal, the same kind of upbuilding. If one member suffers, all suffer. That's the mindset of the church. And Christ says, as we direct all of us towards the same goal of Christ, we all grow together as one man. That is our goal. But then Christ has also provided a measurement of that. How do we know, how can we measure if that's working out? And he gives us that measurement as well. The measurement is this. The measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. How do we measure if we're maturing? It's if we look more like Christ. Can I look at myself today and tomorrow? And can I look at my friend today and the next day and say, we have worked to look just a little bit more like Christ. And we can. Which might seem strange because we know we look so unlike Christ right now. But the promise that Christ has given us is that he is all fullness. Anything we need to be full of potential, that is in Christ. And if we've all been filled with the fullness of Christ, who is everything and has everything for us, then we have everything we need to grow. To look a little bit more like him every single day as we unite around him. The reality is that this entire world is looking for unity. But there's one fundamental problem. People want other people to make their lives about themselves. The world cannot find unity because they are too invested in making life about them. And the church flips that on its head. We come together and make our lives about Christ. And as a result of that, we make our lives about each other. And Paul explains how that is so different from the world in the very next section. The church is united and equipped, but also the church is, number four, protected. The third way that the church helps us change is that it protects us from the world. And that's in verse 14. Paul starts in verse 14 by saying that the church helps us to no longer be children. Now, what exactly does that mean? It obviously means that we're supposed to grow up. But what it specifically means is this. Don't be naive. Don't be gullible. Don't be vulnerable. 
Basically, Paul's first illustration of this is he tells us to not be a baby. Now, that might sound a bit insulting, but really it's very caring in terms of a warning. Babies are very gullible and very vulnerable. They need to grow physically, like they need to learn how to walk because they're unsteady. But they also need to grow spiritually. They need to know how to think about the world. And if they don't do that by a certain point, there are consequences. They are left vulnerable. And Paul says this is so important that he immediately gives another illustration. You shouldn't be a baby, but you also shouldn't be like a ship in a storm. He explains that there are people who are tossed to and fro by the waves and they are carried about by every wind of doctrine. He says we can't be people who are easily manipulated, which is a serious threat in our world and in your culture. Every day you go to school, every day you talk to friends, you are all collectively living in a world that is coming at you with all sorts of worldviews and beliefs, and they will threaten your stability, your spiritual stability. Now, people in the world will tell you the same thing that you are thinking of. Well, we don't want to be naive either. But what they really mean by saying that is they don't want to be innocent. People in this world equate sin with experience. They equate sin with, in a lot of times, the meaning of life, which is to have pleasure and to be in charge of our own lives. That we would continue to do whatever we want to do without any restrictions. And because that is such an important thing in people's lives, they will tell you it should be the point of your life as well. They will offer sin, and it's going to look exciting and thrilling, but they are hiding under banners like experience and excitement and love. And the reality is that it will topple us if we are comfortable being babies, if we are comfortable being ships in a storm. And the most destructive threat that they are going to offer to those people is this. They will convince us to build our lives on ourselves. Make your life about you. Michael Horton uh, is a pastor who I'm reading a book of his right now, and he says something very interesting about this. What he explains is that when the world is being self-focused and they make their lives about themselves, he says, quote, we're not living in the real world. The real world is a creation that God called into being and sustains by the world of his power. But selfishness makes us live in a make-believe world. We are living as though God and our neighbors were made for us. In other words, we are living unnatural lives, living as if as if it were that we could become someone other than the image of God, someone other than created to love God and each other. The reality is that the church was instituted to remind you of reality. When we look at Christ and are doing something different, we are actually doing what God designed us to do. And part of the reason we love the church is this, that the church is the place that God has promised to continue to guide us in reality and to protect us from unreality. And we know that because the Bible promises that Christ will protect his church. We are described as the bride of Christ, and no husband that ever loved his wife would allow her to be vulnerable. And Christ is the same with his church. He says in Matthew chapter 16, 18, when he tells Peter that the gates of hell won't prevail against the church. That's how powerful Christ's protection of his church is. 
And he even explains later through Peter in 1 Peter 2, 9, that since we are a people for God's own possession, he has called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. The idea is that he has given us an opportunity to never go back to darkness by pointing into himself, who is the light. The point is this, God provided pastors and people to be spiritual parents to you. To help remind you of what the world is actually like and to protect you from people telling you that life is about us. Life isn't about us. That's actually the most unnatural life to live, according to Horton, and he is only talking according to the Bible. The church is an institution that God has given to protect us by giving us perspective. We have protection through a perspective that reminds us that life is actually about God's glory. Whether we are on board with that or not, this whole world will be recreated with Christ as king. And he has given us in a church an opportunity not only to be saved from destruction, but to continue to live into joy and to help other people get out of that and grow in Christ as well. It's the third reason that the church Exists, And those are the three reasons why conditions in the church are absolutely perfect to help us change. They equip us, unite us, and protect us. And ultimately, all three of those things are about Christ. Because the church is an institution where Christ is both the source of our power and the center of our purpose. Now here's the question. What do we do with that information? How do we take that information and actually live in the church in a way where we grow and change? What do we do? As I was thinking about this, I was thinking about an article that Ashley recently shared with me. The Washington Post wrote an article in which there was a violinist named Joshua Bell. He's apparently one of the greatest violinists in the entire world right now. And the Washington Post was curious if people could appreciate beauty when they're busy. So what they did is they approached Joshua Bell, one of the greatest violinists in the world, and they put him in a plaza in Washington, D.C., where people who work in politics and work in other important places rush past every day ready to go to their next appointment. They put this violinist there with some of the greatest pieces of music in the world and got him to play. The only thing was he was dressed as a regular person. In the course of the day, they had hidden cameras that were focused on him all over the place, And they watched as 1,097 people passed by one of the greatest violinists in the world playing some of the greatest pieces of music in the world. In the next five seconds, ask yourself the question, how many of those over 1,000 people stopped to listen to him play? Take the next five seconds and think of a number in your head. Of the 1,000 people that went past Joshua Pell playing this music, 23 stopped. 23. The greatest violinist in the world playing some of the greatest pieces of music in the world. And 23 out of over 1,000 people stopped to pay attention. There's so much busyness in people's lives, whether they're in Washington, D.C. or whether in Orange County. And that busyness is stopping us dramatically from appreciating beauty. And I think that illustration is absolutely perfect with the church. The reality is that God is doing something beautiful in the church. 
And we can be so distracted by other things that don't matter in relationship to what God is doing on earth that we don't stop to appreciate it. And many of us grew up in the church. And so, so many normal practices and patterns of life seem so ordinary. But the reality is that we haven't actually stopped to appreciate what God is supernaturally doing in his people in the most ordinary ways possible. But it's actually in those ordinary things that God is proving not only his power, but that his glory is the most important thing in the world. And when we see that explained to us in places like Ephesians 4, the question is, how do we apply that in such a way that we can be part of the beautiful thing that God is supernaturally doing in the world? It's actually simple. It's one word that Paul explains in verses 15 and 16. What we need to do is love. We are called to love the church and to love Christ as we love one another. And Paul explains that in verses 15 and 16 by saying this. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ. From whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped. When each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up. In love. Paul begins in verse 15 and ends in verse 16 with love. We are called to love. As we start to wrap up this sermon, let me explain to you very quickly specifically how to love. Because in that, there's actually four different ways that you can learn how to love most specifically. And all of them actually start with an S. And hopefully that can be helpful to remember them. This is four ways that you can love each other in the church. Number one, speak the truth in love. Which he explains in verse 15, he says, speak the truth in love. You need to not only love one another, but you need to know what love is. And the Bible explains love as a definition, and that love is a balance. It is both an affection, in which you emotionally feel a way towards someone else, but it's also a practice, and that involves knowing the truth and sharing the truth. The reality is, if we try to love without truth, then the best thing we'll have is friendliness. But we won't get familyness. And the church is more than a group of friends. It is a family. But at the same time, on the other side of the coin, if we share the truth without love, that we can end up denying the truth that we're saying. And truths that are so sweet can be bitter. Alistair Begg, a popular pastor, says it this way. Truth becomes hard if it isn't softened by love. And love becomes soft if it's not strengthened by truth. We need to be able to speak what is real to one another. We have that in God's word, but we also have to do it in the right way. And the church creates a context in which we can actually practice to do this. We do fail and fall short in the church when we try to love one another. But we at least have all of the tools and the equipment to be better at this. And at the end of the day, the church is covered by the grace of Christ in such a way that we can be trained and taught to do it better and then to practice doing it better. That's the first way, to speak the truth in love. And the second one is very similar to it, which is that we are supposed to supply love. Now, what do I mean when I say supply love? Well, it comes from the next part where he says, from the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is, Here's the key word, equipped. That word equipped is actually a different word from the equipped we had before. And the equipped is actually dealing with equipment. It's talking about a supply or a provision. What Paul is saying is that the church is held together by God. 
And one of the ways he does that is through people that he's given gifts to. All of us have a different, unique gift. It can be our personality or our skill set. But whatever it is, God uniquely gave it to you if he saved you so that you would be able to supply the church with what it needs. Now, talking about gifts is a whole conversation in and of itself. But what we're trying to establish here is God has guaranteed that if you trust in Christ and believe in him, he has saved you and he's also gifted you. There is a place in the church for you to be used and to be necessary to anyone else in the church. Every single joint is necessary. And the church is the only institution in the whole world that can truly say every person is indispensable. Every person is necessary because God saved each person and then gifted each person. And he gave all of us his love as a gift that we could use these things rightly. And that's an essential reminder for us because it's a reminder that we don't need people like us. Actually, we need people that are dramatically different from us. People who have gone through different things, who are in different stages of life, who are different genders, different cultures. Because all of those people are indispensable for your growth. And you're in this church, which means sovereignly the people in this church are given for you to grow. No matter how awkward and uncomfortable it can sometimes be to fight for unity, God has promised that different people bring different things to the table, and all of those things are necessary. God has supplied us with everything we need in each other. Because each one of us has a unique way to point each other to Christ. And that actually bleeds into the third way that we're supposed to demonstrate love to each other, which is this. We're supposed to show love. Paul says that he supplied every joint with a certain equipping to supply love. But then he says that each part needs to work properly. And the question is, if I know what my gifting is, how do I work properly? The reality is you work properly if your gift and using your gift is fueled by love. If your goal is to show the love of God to other people. Paul explains that love is indispensable, as indispensable as you are with your unique gift. And if you aren't motivated by love, then your gift isn't actually being used. Paul explains that in 1 Corinthians 13, where he says, without love, we are noisy, we are nothing, and we gain nothing. In the same way that a car without gas doesn't run, us using our gifts are not helpful unless the fuel of love is helping move us forward. And the reality is that that is not just a warning, it's actually an encouragement. Because no matter how desperately the world is looking for love, and giving us movies and music and different narratives trying to define what love is, only the church has true love. Because only the church has the greatest demonstration and the greatest power of love that the world has ever seen. Christ has explained that himself in John 15, 13, where he says, Greater love has nothing, no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. Did you catch that? God called sinners his friends. And not only did he call them friends, but he died for his friends. And that's why John says later in 1 John 4, 10, that in this is love, not that we loved God, 
but that he loved us and he sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. God loved us so much that he died for us and took on hell for us so that we would never die and that we would never experience hell. That is love and that love should be shown. That love should be demonstrated. It is available and therefore it must be used and shown. And that's the fourth thing that we need to do with the love we've been given. We need to speak the truth in love. We need to supply love. We need to show love. And finally, we need to stir up love, which means we need to help other people love better as they help us to love better. And Paul says that when he says, when the whole body speaks the truth in love, is supplied in love, and when it shows love, there's a result. It makes the whole body grow so that it builds itself up in love. John Calvin, one of the greatest theologians who ever lived, at a very young age, when he wrote his book, The Institutes of the Christian Religion, he said this, Whoever lives as little as possible for himself lives a good life. But conversely, no one leads a more disordered life than the man who lives for himself and who only thinks for his own gain. Who are you living for? The world says it's normal to live for yourself, but that's actually a demonstration of the slavery of sin. Living for ourselves is how we die. And when Christ died for you, he freed you from making your life about you. He made our lives about what they were designed to be, which is about him. And consequently, that it would be about others. And in so doing, we not only receive and experience true love, but we get to stir it up in others. And the question is, do you want to stir it up in others? Our church is not perfect. Not to worldly standards. And even to Christian standards, we fall short all the time. Different people here have friendships that took a long time to develop. Others of you guys don't feel like you have those kinds of friendships. You feel like you have to go elsewhere to find those friendships. But at the same time, so many of us can be so nervous about what's going on in us that we can forget to look around and see what Christ could be doing in other people. And you have been placed here to benefit someone else. Someone who desperately needs to see the love of God. No matter how many church functions that you could show up that it feels awkward or it feels strange, God has a divine purpose for you there. Which is that you would use the love from his gospel and the unique gifting that you have to demonstrate Christ's love to someone else that they would look more like Christ. Whether you are a junior hire who has young kids who want to run around and still play with you, or whether you are a high schooler who is not very interested in hanging out with junior hires, you have a place here. But only are you useful if you know Christ. The reality is that all of this is based on whether you have faith in Christ. If you don't, you need to see not only what he is doing in individuals, but what he is doing in his institution. An institution that if you are in Christ is for you. An institution that Spurgeon once said is like heaven on earth. 
Christians can look at an imperfect, different group of people coming together on a Sunday morning, and truly it feels like heaven. But if it doesn't feel that way, it might be because you don't know Christ. And the reality is that knowing Christ is the greatest thing in the world, and being with his people, who have been saved from not some of their sin, not most of their sin, but all of their sin, and being able to worship together is the greatest place that you could possibly be to grow. If you don't know Christ, then look more closely at what's happening on a Sunday morning. Look more closely at what's happening in your life group. Because it's not just that people like each other or they're friendly to each other. It's that people do love each other, which is impossible without supernatural intervention. And if you do know Christ, and the church still feels awkward and strange and weird, look at the design that God has given to the church. Look at the way that he's promised you have a place in it, and ask yourself the question, can I use my gifts and my personality in such a way that I can help this church look more like Christ? Because if you know Christ, regardless if you are in grade 7 or grade 12, I promise on the authority of the Bible, that you are necessary. The greatest environment with the greatest conditions for you to grow is in the church. Because only in the church, God will point you to the greatest hope and the greatest joy that you could ever have, just to know Christ. And because Christ has poured out his love for us in the church, he has also given us it in such abundance that it actually pours out of us into each other. Look more closely at the church and see the beautiful things he is doing and ask yourself the question, do I want to grow? And if so, the church is the place you need to be. Let's pray. Father, thank you for uh, this time. Help us to think about the church not as a building but as a people, a group of different people that you have saved from all sorts of different places in order to worship and love you. Help us to reflect on our place in it, that we might contribute to the amazing, beautiful things you are doing in the church. And Father, if there's any students here who don't know you, and they don't think there's anything extraordinary happening in the church, please open their eyes to that. The church truly is the greatest institution in the world, and it is certainly not because of the people. It's because it is full of people redeemed by a great Savior. Father, please reveal your glory to us as we gather on Sunday mornings, as we meet together to play games or to worship or to learn more from your word. Help us to not just have a pattern of being better people, but that we would love a greater Savior than we deserve and yet who loves us unconditionally. And Father, as you do all of these things, please provide people in the church, people we don't know and we haven't talked to, to be disciplers to us, that we might see your glory more and grow more. Father, please apply this truth in our hearts by your Holy Spirit, because only you can do that. And we know that you can, because you promised you would. And so we thank you. Thank you for all of these things, Father, and we pray this in your name. Amen. Thank you.